Welcome to the That Don't Fit podcast, a podcast where we're dedicated to talking about life and life's real issues that cross racial and generational lines. My name is Jared Torrance, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy Farmer. We're friends, we're pastors, we're wanting to help people talk and process life in a crazy world. Welcome to the conversation. It's my pleasure to be here. If you've never been to one of these, uh, these are our foundations for ethnic harmony meetings, which we do basically every fifth, uh, every fifth Tuesday. Um, and uh, they're designed just to help us as a church grow, understanding, appreciating, and, uh, and rejoicing in, uh, in ethnic diversity and, uh, and harmony. Um, so last year, it's a big picture if you've never been here before, last year uh, we were focused primarily on bringing some, some uh, redemptive perspective to some of the key uh, flashpoints in dealing with any kind of racial or ethnic uh, um, struggles. And so that was, that was the emphasis last year. This year, JT wanted to change a little bit, uh, at least for this year, and celebrate, just, just, just celebrate what it means to have ethnic and cultural diversity in the church. So that's the emphasis of, of our time tonight. We're going to do that, and we're going to do that uh, coming out of uh, the, the Paul's uh, letter to the Colossians. Um, and so if you have a Bible, it's actually in your, your uh, outlines as well. There should be outlines in front of you, at least some quotes. And it'll be there. But we're going to come out of this, and um, we're going to be looking at the experience of diversity in worship. That's going to be our attention uh, focus tonight. So uh, let me read this, and we'll pray, and then jump right in. Paul writes, Colossians 3, beginning in verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God has chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And of all, the, of all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Lord, bless this time together, Lord, help us, God, to appreciate what you're doing in us and what you desire to do in us uh, as we look to worship you as a diverse uh, but unified people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're talking about diversity and unity and how they work together. Um, and we're going to focus tonight on singing. Just a, just a comment that I think you would understand. When I say the word worship, I don't just simply mean singing. Really, all of life lived in, uh, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is worship. It's the way we're meant to live. We're meant to live uh, before the face of God and in the fear of God and in the love of Christ. And so our lives should be lived as lives of worship. Uh, and when we gather together, our experience together is an experience of worship because, because we, are, we are exalting and glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. So this, what we're doing tonight, is worship. We didn't, we didn't sing and worship and now we're teaching. All of this is worship. But again, our singing, though, is an expression of worship. And so we're gonna, when I talk about worship tonight, and I'll try, I'll, I'll try to be careful with it, but you'll know I'm referring primarily to the singing aspect of our worship um, that'll just help you track with what I'm saying. The, um, 
The big picture in this text is this. God's church expresses its unity in diversity. We are diverse in background, united in Christ. You see that in verse 11. Verse 11, Paul lists different groups of people about as broad a cross-section of ethnic groups that could exist in that location and social classes and different political persuasions. Uh, he, he is, he's addressing a very diverse group um, and he says, here there is. So that means we're all together. All of us together, though we're diverse, he's able to proclaim But Christ is all and in all. So there is a wonderful statement of the diversity of people united in Christ. The deepest cause, this points to a very important truth, which is the deepest cause of disunity is not the fact that there are racial differences or social or political differences, It is our alienation from God and each other because of sin. Below all disunity is alienation from God and from others. But praise be to God, those who were alienated have been reconciled because of our sin, has been forgiven through the atoning death and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those barriers that have kept us apart from one another and unable to be unified, have been broken down and now we're able to come united in the most profound way, the unity of the gospel. The gospel is the source of our unity. So we're a diverse group brought together through the saving forgiveness of Christ to be a unified body committed to loving each other as we have been loved by in Christ, and that's what Paul is doing in those first few few parts of the text. He's he's saying, "Okay, you've brought together in me. Now live this way. Unity looks like holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaints against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you." What he's saying, he's saying, "We are you. You are united in me. You are united in Christ." And so now, live that way toward one another and break down the barriers of the flesh that tend to get in your way. These are all antidotes to the things that break the unity of the faith in the bonds of peace. And so Paul is calling them to live a unified life together. We get to verse 15. We see the peace, love, and thankfulness is the gospel glue that binds us together as one unified body. And in verse 16, where we're going to focus tonight, Paul gives us a great way to do this. How do we express this diversity? How do we show the world? How do we show one another our unity in diversity? Paul gives a great way to do it. We practice unity in Diversity with our voices. What we sing and why we sing it. Look at verse 16 again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, but don't just hold it there. Just don't keep it silent. Don't just back off and treasure the word in your heart. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, but not just speaking, but singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with the motivation of thankfulness in your hearts to God. That directly relates to the gathered church. Paul is talking to the gathered church. He's talking about, this is what I would like to see in the body. In your body, Colossians, I want to see this expressed. When you gather together, I want to see psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That will validate the unity of the faith, even though you are a diverse people. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson comments on this verse when he says this, How does our corporate life reflect the one new humanity that the New Testament envisages? Is there not a need for, some, for Christians from highly different backgrounds to come together and recite one creed, read from one scripture, and jointly sing shared songs? 
thereby crossing race gaps and gender gaps and generation gaps, standing in a shared lineage that reaches back through centuries and is finally grounded in the Word. That's what we do. That's what we do. When we sing together tonight, Sunday mornings, in your small groups, we are, we are carrying on a tradition that begins right here of unity and diversity. Tonight we're going to celebrate what we sing and why we sing it. And I want to, uh, there's two principles that are, that are crucial to do this. One is that we need unity in what we sing. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you all. It's a plural, richly. Or another way it's been translated, be, let it be a rich treasure in your hearts. What we sing must reflect the truth of Christ, the gospel. Truth matters because we are singing to God when we gather, but we're also admonishing one another. We are encouraging one another. We are calling one another in our singing to worship the true God. Whatever the music does, and we're going to talk a lot about music tonight, to stir our emotions, it must not be at the expense of truth. It's one of the dangers in musical worship is the tendency for the music to take first priority. Bob Coughlin reminds us, while music speaks to the emotions, it's the truth that sets us free, not the music. You will be moved by music. Music Anybody who can write and perform musical effect, music effectively knows how to move you. You go to a Broadway play, they will, they will get you to that crying point. They know how to do that. Uh, you, you, can, you go to anybody who's any good at all, they know how to perform and play to appeal to the emotion. That's not the same as worship. Worship has emotion attached to it, but it's not driven by style and music, it's driven by truth. So we need unity in what we sing. If we're not singing truth, there is no true unity. But we celebrate diversity, even as we need unity, we celebrate diversity in how we sing. We sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Um, Paul is advocating diverse musical expressions to fit a diverse people. There are various different ways people understand what is he saying when he says psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Uh, are those different categories? Are they sort of overlays of the same ideas? What is he actually saying there? Um, what we do know is he's saying there's diversity. He doesn't just say sing music. He says sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. He's advocating diverse musical expressions to fit a diverse people. There's no right tradition or superior culture, or best style of music that lends itself to worship. We all have musical styles we prefer. But if you come to sing with the congregation, and engage or not engage, based on whether you like the musical style, you're missing the point. That's not why we gather. We don't gather because that church has a great worship team. We don't gather because they have a great choir. We don't gather because their music is majestic. We don't gather because they have a great organist. We gather to sing truth in wonderful diversity. Vaughn Roberts, another scholar, says this, If I identify an experience with a, an experience with a genuine encounter with God, and only a certain kind of music gives me that experience, then it will be very important to me that that kind of music is played regularly in my church. Now that will cause no problems if everyone shares my taste. But if others feel they need different kinds of music, there's bound to be trouble. And the history of the church has had that kind of trouble. 
That explains why music is one of the greatest causes of division in Christian circles. That's, that's historically true. You go back into the Middle Ages and there was great controversy about singing, uh, whether or not we should sing harmony or just unison. You go a little bit later into the Reformation and the question is, should we be singing hymns or just psalms? Then there's, should we be, be singing a cappella or, or should we have musical accompaniment? Um, up till now is, do we need guitars? Whatever it is in the future. You know, do you, and, and so the idea that, 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 that stylistic clashes are new is not true. It's always been that way. Particular music styles are associated with an authentic... Uh, so there's very little tolerance is the point he's making. Particular music styles are associated with an authentic counter, encounter with God. Those with other preferences are dismissed as unspiritual old fuddy-duddies or mindless, frothy youngsters. Now, I don't really want to be anybody's unspiritual old fuddy-duddy. Or I don't want to be a mindless, frothy youngster. Although I'd probably prefer to be the mindless, frothy youngster at this point in my life. No matter what the style, if it tells the truth, if the truth of Jesus is expressed in that style, we should be able to sing that truth as if we mean it. Tonight we're going to celebrate the diversity in our experience in singing praises to Jesus, but I'm going to highlight three traditions from which we as a church have drawn over the years from our singing. I'm going to call them the hymn tradition, the contemporary worship tradition, and the gospel tradition. These are my own labels. Uh, they describe certain um, whole worlds of music in the church. Um, they're not the only ones we could address or express. The messianic Jewish tradition is a powerful tradition that, has, that we've, t- we've tasted a bit, but have not uh, expressed much. T- traditions from the Latino world, from Asian cultures, Wherever the gospel has gone, it has produced a worshiping people. And that people, wherever they've been, have always found ways to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God in ways that have glorified Jesus in their cultural setting. We don't need to export a culture for people to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're going to have a chance to talk about this a little bit later, but my three points are going to be basically the three traditions. I'm going to address them in chronological order, in other words, the order in which they developed over time. So a couple of ground rules. Just you know, I'm going to be very broad about these traditions. If this if one of these positions traditions is particularly uh, close to you or you've thought a lot about it, I'm going to probably not do a great job for you in describing it. Um, but just bear with me. I'm trying to keep things at a level where we can all participate. Um, And I'm not going to critique excesses or weaknesses in any tradition. Because there are multiple traditions, that means there are different flavors, and that means that there are some that have their strengths and weaknesses that come with each. We're not going to focus on weaknesses. We're just going to talk about the way their tradition has has expressed, given people an opportunity to express themselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the first tradition is the hymn tradition. When we think of the hymn tradition... We think of theologically rich songs with multiple verses sung in a congregation where the song structure allows for significant truth content in the song. We just sang a hymn. We just sang a hymn that has a tremendous amount of truth. If you are a Bible reader, you will, be, you will look there and see incredible biblical truth wrapped into this song. Um, streams of mercy. Um, Sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. What is he talking about that? Mount of my redeeming love. What is he talking about there? I raise my Ebenezer. If you don't read your Bible, you have no idea what he's saying. And he goes on and on and on. That's a wonderful hymn with deep biblical truth. Old Testament and New Testament truth. In hymns, there may be a number of verses. John Newton, for example, wrote... Six verses for Amazing Grace, but you can find up to 13 in some hymnals because people would just add verses. They said, I like that song, I'm going to add this verse to it. Um, the other thing that's happened is in, in, in recent years, uh, 
there's a, um, what's his name? Who, who did, my chains are gone. Chris Tomlin. So Chris Tomlin, he just added a, uh, he added a chorus to it, which has been done before. And he just, what does he do? He just said, I'm going to add to this. But, but you have these, uh, the, 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 the form lends itself, because of the stanza approach, lends itself to unpacking truth. So in a lot of, in a lot of hymns, you'll see almost a whole gospel presentation. Or a whole uh, biblical theology in one song where they'll start Old Testament and they'll move ultimately to, to, uh, to heaven in their songs. That's, that, the structure allows for that. Now, I grew up in this tradition, this hymn tradition. I grew up in a Lutheran church. Um, had interesting uh, experience with that. Uh, I grew up singing next to my dad. When, when, uh, and my dad, uh, my dad was a leader in the church. He was a councilman. And he, he had a number of important positions in the church. And I would sit next to him. We'd always sit on the aisle. And so I'd sit on the aisle so I could see. And, so, and they had a choir that would process down the, the aisle. And the, at the back of the choir was the, um, was, was the pastor. And he'd come down and he'd be singing, but he'd be singing a different tune than everybody else did. And I was like, where is he getting his tune? And, uh, and it's, I sort of, my first real exposure to hearing somebody sing a tenor part, to sing a second part to the, he just was singing the tenor part. And it was really cool. I thought, you know, I should just kind of wait for him to come down and hear his part. And I was standing next to my dad and I was like, my dad's got his own tune too. You know, he's got this tune. He's saying it's nothing like what they're doing. It's nothing like what we're doing. And then I realized, I get a little older, I realized he's just tone deaf. He has no idea what his, what his thing is. He's just singing out loud. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, he is nowhere near any particular note in this song. Um, and so, but, but over time, as I grew up, uh, b- because this troop wasn't in my heart, just singing it, it grew, it, it, it grew fainter and fainter to me. It grew more, it didn't fit my life. I didn't, it, didn't, it didn't describe me. It didn't, didn't, didn't connect with me anyway. And, and that and a number of other things caused me again to, to drift from the church. I, and I, I grew to disdain the, that tradition um, because my heart grew cold to the truth of God. I, I threw it all out. Churches seemed like a place for the dead, and hymns were dead people's songs. That's the way I understood it. This is so irrelevant for me in my life. I don't understand the words. I don't understand why they're singing it like this. I don't like the organ stuff. I wanted rock and roll. That's what I wanted. But when God arrested my life in my early 20s and opened my eyes to him in college, one of the things I, it, it happened is I rediscovered hymns. I, I picked up a hymn book and I started looking at it again. And suddenly all these words that were really just gibberish to me suddenly started to, it was like opening up a world of artistic imagery and thought that, that took God's word off the page and applied it right to my life, spoke from my life. And I realized these hymns that are two or three, four hundred years old the, the people writing them were having the same experiences that I'm having right now. I can identify with somebody in a completely different part of the world multiple generations ago because they're singing and write about the same things I'm experiencing. And the hymns grew, became very, very meaningful to me. Heart full of grace began to love singing hymns. So where does the hymn tradition come from? Well, we see it here at the very beginning of the church. They're singing hymns. We, you, you'll see hymns in your Bible. Um, in the New Testament, you'll see in, the, in, the, in Paul's letters, you'll see certain sections that are set off like they're almost a little, a little uh, prayer or a little um, uh, poem. Uh, that's where they think that was actually the hymn, a hymn that Paul was inserting into his letters that would be familiar to everybody. So back then, people are already writing hymns. They're they're not just taking the Psalms. They're actually writing their own words on redemptive truth. And so you see at the very beginning, um, but the hymn tradition as we know it was born as protest music in the Protestant 
Reformation. Protestant protest. The first leaders of the Protestant Reformation, Luther, Calvin, and others, saw that the institutional church used music to divide the people of God from the Word of God. What was happening was, first of all, people were not allowed to sing in church. They were sung too. And they were sung too in Latin, a language which none of them understood. And so it was simply performance. Ritual to them. Um, and, uh, and to the point where they just went to church and never knew what was happening. I, I've seen that happening even this past year. I was in Ethiopia and, and the Coptic church there, which there are Coptic believers, but um, the Coptic church there in, in many ways has, has just kind of, kind of doubled down on its own tradition and is not really engaging the, the, the people who are in Ethiopia. And so at, at four in the morning... Um, I'm I'm in I'm in my room and uh, a loudspeaker starts blaring and it's a language that I don't understand. Someone's singing and for the next four hours, uh, they're singing from four to eight o'clock. They're singing through a loudspeaker down the street from me, and people are gathering. And I asked one of the guys, and I said, uh, I said, uh, so, so what are they singing? And he said, nobody knows, because nobody uses that language anymore. Um. And so that was happening in, in, the, in the world of, uh, of, of, the, of the reformers. So one of the first things they did in establishing the Protestant church was to bring singing back to the people. We're going to let you sing with words that you understand. So they began writing songs, Luther writing songs, uh, a mighty fortress in German for the German people. Uh, Calvin writing songs in French. They're writing the songs of the people against a religious world that had marginalized people in favor of institution. Hymns were declarations that the people of God can know the truth for themselves. It's not up to the clergy to tell you what is true. You can know it. You can read it. The hymns came alongside uh, Bibles published in the language of the people. And you can declare the truth. You can read the Word of God for yourself, but through these hymns you can declare it to one another. You can admonish one another according to God's Word. At its best, the hymn tradition expresses in this text, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That was the point of the reformers. We want the word of Christ to dwell richly in the people of God. That's why they developed that tradition. Skip the page here just a second. Okay. Now, if the hymn to fit, no, that's not it. Sorry, I got out of order. Here we go. In the hymn tradition, singing is truth proclaimed. The hymnal is a very powerful thing in the hymn tradition. It's not just a book that it sits in every pew that you pull out. The hymnal in church traditions is is developed as the means by which we make sure this church stays faithful. You sing these songs. Um, when churches change hymnals, it's a big deal. There was a change in the hymnal uh, when I was growing up and a tremendous controversy. What songs are coming out? What songs are going in? It's a huge deal. We need to see the hymnal as not just a book, but it is a, it's an expression of, of what these people believe God wants them to proclaim and exalt over. You see that in Nazi Germany uh, in, in the early part of World War II where, where uh, the German church, which was the Lutheran church uh, that was taken over by the Nazi party, published, they, they, they changed hymnals, they published a new hymnal, they, they, they cut out half the hymns. And 
they, uh, they, it, mo- they cut out all hymns having anything to do with the Jews, anything to do with anything related to messianic hope. And they inserted hymns glorifying the German nation. Why? Because we want our people, we're the Third Reich. This is the religion we want our people to believe. And we're going to do it through the hymnal. Pastors come, pastors go. But hymnals stay for generations. That's how important they are. And Bonhoeffer, other Christians, rejected the hymnal that they were willing to die for the sake of the hymnal. Now, I actually discovered something important about the hymn tradition just a few years ago. I was at a, a church in, in Washington, D.C., uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is pastored by Mark Dever. And we were, we were in the Sunday morning service, and they sing hymns. And, um, and he loves, Mark loves to uh, explain, because he has a lot of visitors coming, what they're doing and why they're doing it. And one of the things he said is he said, and, I, and this I found really, really helpful to me, He said, our goal is that singing is about the congregational singing and and the congregation hearing each other sing the words. And you can feel that at times when uh, whoever's whoever's leading singing for us will just say, just the congregation alone. And you feel the effect of just the people singing around you. Some off-key. Some, you know, some mumbling words they don't understand. But you feel it. You feel that effect. And so, so that's congregational singing in a hymn mode is us, uh, us sharing that. One of the pastors there said it this way. The most beautiful instrument in any Christian service is the sound of the congregation singing. So when we sing the hymns, we ponder the words, we, you should ponder the words you're singing. If you don't know the hymns, just read along and absorb the truth. And listen to your brothers and sisters singing to each other. The hymn tradition teaches us that no matter what happens around us, God's truth and God's promises are unshakable. And we need that. We need what those hymns provide. Second, in chronological order, is the gospel tradition. By gospel tradition, for our purposes, I'm meaning the black gospel tradition that has come out of the African-American experience. Um, I need the mercy of my African-American brothers and sisters here because this is not my tradition. Um, My comments aren't to educate you, but to help us all understand a little bit better. Now, historically speaking, there is no one black gospel tradition, but several streams of cultural experience that have worked together to shape how the congregation has sung in the black church. Like anything else, it's not a monolithic understanding. There are streams at work here. Um, there is a rhythm-based musical heritage from Africa, a common experience of slavery and oppression, and the story of the Bible as an exodus narrative leading to redemption. Those are powerful factors that shape the gospel tradition. No, it's all out of wax. I'm going to get rid of that one. Okay, here we go. Yeah. This will help. At its best, the gospel tradition expresses what I would say, the teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, spiritual songs, call of this text. It is a multifaceted congregational engagement with music. In gospel music, you get taught gospel truth in congregational hymns, but you also get admonished to believe and act on truth in call and response songs. It's one of the big uh, uh, one of the big styles in gospel music is call and response. That is not simply a style; that has a purpose. The idea behind a call and response is that is that. There, there is a choir or there are, there are singers leading you, but you are then responding to them. And it's an expression of the congregation engaging one another, challenging one another to believe this, what you're singing. Not just sing, it's not passive, it's not we're singing the notes, next song. No, we're going to sing this till we believe it. That's been the whole point. We're not done 
until we believe and we all believe what we're singing. And we're going to express that belief in visible, audible ways. In his insightful book, Black and Reform, pastor and teacher Anthony Carter describes the spirit-led dimension grow up in the black gospel tradition that he had. He says the songs we sang were not projected onto an overhead video screen, nor were many of them to be found in the pew hymnals. Neither the organist nor the pianist could be pouring over sheet music or be seen that way, yet their fingers seemed to intuitively dance over the keys. Despite the lack of formalism, the fervor with which we expressed these songs was not diminished, nor was the clarity of content obscured. The words of such songs were a part of us, and their melodies resonated within us. Through them, theology came alive, and faith was given expression. Through them, I saw my heritage of faith, and it was rich. Many of these songs were not, they were, they were not composed by, by people with musical background. They were composed as people sang, and they, ga- they grabbed a melody here, and they put words to it here, and they sang as they worked, and they sang as they lived, and then they brought that into the church, and that, over time, uh, excellence of musicianship was brought to it, but at, at the essence, it was always the whole congregation can participate. We're all participating in this. I said, the gospel tradition is not my tradition, but there was a point, I think, where I caught a bit of that experience. Um, for a couple of years, around the time Jill and I got married, uh, Jill was actually in a black gospel singing group. Yes, she was. Um, Rosella used to say, you know, you got it in you, honey. You just got to know how to get it out. <laughs> um, but Jill and six other ladies were led by a talented brother, um, who wrote and arranged gospel music. We, uh, they would sing at churches and gatherings, mostly around Norristown and in North Philly. Um, I was the roadie for the group for a couple of years. That was my job. I just carried equipment. Um, so we'd be in the services, and, and, um, and I'd notice as I was in there that a, a song would be going, and not everybody would be singing at that moment. I look around, and people, some people just praying, some people just listening, some people, you know, they, they would just be in, absorbing. And I just figured, that's what they're, they're absorbing the song, they're absorbing words. The words were never that complicated. In fact, they could be very repetitive. They were often um, refrains that were very repetitive. Um, and so I recognized, I didn't know the song, so I'll start listening. And, um, and it started to slowly hit me. I was coming in and, and listening to these songs, most of them I didn't know, and these test, testimonies of the goodness and faithfulness and deliverance of God, no matter what the circumstances. That, that was so tangible. And you could tell when they're singing a song about, about God's faithfulness, even in trial, you knew that these people who were listening were people who were reflecting on the present or former trials that they were in. And they were applying that truth to their trials. Like Psalm 136, just simple message over and over again. And the simple unavoidable truth stopped being out there in my life and started to be in here. You... You couldn't sit there long enough to where you weren't having to start to wrestle. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe, God, you are faithful? Maybe that's the only thing in the song that's resonating. You are faithful. Yeah, of course I'll sing it. Of course I theologically understand it. But do I believe it right now for this moment? And gospel music forced me to make decisions in that moment. Do I believe this or do I not? There were many conversion experiences. I was always saved, but sometimes I was not believing what I, what, I, what I understood. And so I had to have it shower over me through repetitive singing. And I found it to be, to be incredibly powerful. Because when you actually take your heart to a place where you can, you know what? This, I have to say this is true. 
This has to be true. And right now, this is the most important true thing I'm dealing with. Because I'm among these people, and this is the thing that we're talking about is true. And then you start to singing. And then once you start singing, man, there's no barrier. There's no barrier how much you want to say that. How much you want to sing that. And all that's happening in one song. And then you go to the next song. Yolanda Adams, gospel singer, said, there's a sound that comes from gospel music that doesn't come from anywhere else. It's a sound of peace. It's a sound of I'm going to make it through all of this. And you can't sit for long in a church where there's gospel music being sung that you don't get forced to the question of what do I really believe. What we get from the gospel tradition is not is that we are not where we really belong. That's the point. We're on a journey to a better place. No matter what happens to us, we're going to make it through all of this. And we need that, brothers and sisters, these days as well. The third tradition is the contemporary worship tradition. This is the most common way we sing here. It's a tradition we birthed into this church. We, it, was, it was fairly new when this church was started. But now it's sort of the way things go. Um, it was fresh and edgy at one time. It is not fresh and edgy anymore. Um, we are not fresh and edgy. There are people out there doing fresh and edgy, but the world says you are way behind. You'll never keep up with the world in your fresh and edginess. Um, even trends in, in black gospel music are more in a more contemporary worship style these days. One of the great things to listen to is, is, is gospel music that's, that's done with much more of this this uh, band style too. Um, this is my accepted tradition. I'm most familiar with it, which means I'm also in danger of being comfortable and just going through the motions. You know, we know the motions. Yeah. Yeah, carry the TV. You know, you know, I mean, and I, and I have said, you know, Sunday mornings I've gone, why am I waving my hand right now? I've been thinking about the Eagles game. Why is my hand raised? You know, you just, it, 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 because it's familiar, it becomes rote. And it isn't always from the heart. That wasn't always the case. I remember, um, I remember when having guitars in church was edgy. I was born again February 10th, 1981. A week or so after I was born again, I went to my first contemporary church service. It was called Mana Church. And it was just outside Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, the church was started by paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne. So they were pretty much all Army or Air Force. Um, and it was led by all these paratrooper guys and, uh, who are pretty intense. Um, there was a band up there. So I go in to the service and I notice there's a band up there. And they've got music, you know, things like that. And, and I was in a band at the time. So I thought, this is pretty cool. And so I, they start to play. And I thought, okay, these songs are... They're not that complicated, but they're catchy, and they're certainly playing them well. These guys know what they're doing. And so um, they start singing songs about Jesus, but they have a the kind of be. It sounds like the Eagles, like not the football team, but the band. Um, uh, and I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, this is kind of like going to a concert a little bit, and I'm just going to sing along with them. And then the worship leader, who I found out later was a captain in the, in the, uh, in the Airborne, um, stopped everything. And so we're all singing, we're all, you know, and he, he, he stop, 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 stop. And he just said, we are not pleasing God. We need to, we need to get on our faces and repent. And boom, everybody down, you know. I mean, it really was a military maneuver. Just boom, everybody down, except me. I'm the only one in the room going, okay, I don't know what's happening now. And everybody's down and they're crying out to God. They're, Lord, Lord, help us, forgive us. For, for, for our laxity and, and he's praying up there and he's prophesying and he's saying, I'm hearing the Lord and the Lord's telling you this. I don't know if I believe all that stuff these days. At that time, I didn't have any way to discern it. So it was all legit to me. And so I, I, I was just like, okay, this is crazy. And, so, and, then, and then they got back up and the, and the roof came off the building. Like, they were serious about it. But... It gets to the heart of what is best about contemporary worship. At its best, contemporary worship declares 
the thankfulness in your hearts to God. The difference between when we started singing in that congregation and then when they began to pray and repent and then stand up again was thankfulness to God. They'd taken their attention off the music, they put it on the Lord, and they said, I give glory to God, and their hearts were free to be thankful to the Lord. If the hymn tradition is born out of protest and the gospel tradition is born out of suffering, the contemporary tradition was born out of revival. People whose eyes were radically open to Jesus. You saw it develop in the 60s as people were being radically saved out of a secular culture into the church. They wanted to express uh, the radical effect of the gospel on their lives in a familiar language that they knew. That language included electrical instruments and song forms that fit verse, chorus, bridge, format, pop music. Sometimes it was just setting the scripture to music. They would just take the Bible and then they, they, they started developing hymns. That because of the format, they're, they're simpler than, 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 than a hymn structure, but, um, but you can fit a lot of truth in there. Contemporary worship tradition is still developing, but it's best, it, it declares that God is real and He's mighty to save. We need that too. It's a revival tradition because it's born out of the idea that God has to invade our world and our hearts. To change us. We will not seek him. He must seek us. The church exists in a world that's constantly changing. Is hostile or indifferent to God. But God is on the move. Saving lost souls. And when those newly saved souls gather together. They need to be able to express. The passionate thankfulness in their hearts. For what God has done. In ways that are familiar to them. If that means guitars or loops or beats. As long as the focus is not on song style but content. And our, our passion is directed toward God and not toward something else. Matt Papa, who's a contemporary worship leader, says this. Worship doesn't happen when a guy gets on stage with a guitar. It happens when faith-filled eyes behold the glory of Christ. So we've talked about, about this. I want to take a few minutes before I close. And this just interact with you guys a little bit. And just maybe... The, Maybe you've had an experience like I've had, I've described a little bit, being in different tradition, experiencing a different tradition. Um, uh, it could be something totally different than this. Uh, it could be, you know, being, being in, a, in, a, uh, in a culture where, where it's more, more Hispanic or Latino and stuff. Whatever it is. I just love to hear any experience you've had where you recognize this is unfamiliar to me, but I know this is true worship. Anybody have anything they're familiar with? You know, part of the reason we're, we're talking about this is, is to help everybody think, okay, the form will change. There, I, 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 I want to focus on the content, but I don't want to, I don't want to have a critical heart to the form. I don't want to say, well, this isn't the best way to do it. I can't worship like this. It's those kind of things, I think, that go against the diversity in unity that we need. We need to be able to, to, to be able to say, okay, Lord, this is not me, this is not my style, but you know what? This this is this is my truth and these are my people. And so let's let's just give it, you know, give ourselves to it. Um, let's do this. Um, and it's gonna be hard for for guys like me as as who grow older um, and whose stylistic evolution is starting to slow. <laughs> and uh, I'm kind of locked in on a certain period of time. Um, as things change, I, you know, I'll struggle with, gosh, you know, the good old days. Back when, you know, and so uh, just think about that. Think about that. We're going to close here. Um, I want to sing Amazing Grace. And I want to sing that song because I think it's a wonderful reflection of these traditions. If you're familiar with the song, it was it was composed by... John Newton, and um, it was composed as a hymn for his hymnal, the Alney hymnal, which he put together for his church. So he and, uh, uh, he and uh, William Cooper wrote the hymns, uh, and this is just one of the hymns. It was to celebrate, uh, I think it's Second Chronicles, but just they were just letting the, letting the Bible shape how they viewed music, and they were, he wrote this hymn out of this. It's very autobiographical as well, um, because it speaks not simply to his awareness of his own uh, sinful heart, 
but his awareness of being a slave trader, of being a man who had trafficked in slaves. In fact, if you look at the, at the hymn, you realize there's never any, um, there's never any uh, um, composer of the, of the music listed. Um, the, the tune is, is, has no composer. And the reason for that is that the, it's a, it's a five-tone uh, melody, um, a pentatonic melody, but it corresponds to the, the black keys on the piano, but also corresponds to the, the uh, songs that he would hear sung by people being shipped from, from Africa in, on his boat to, um, to, to the Caribbean. He would hear them moaning these songs and he pulled the melody for this song from their experience of being enslaved. And he wanted his song of being free attached to this melody of what was not freedom. And he did that as his own commentary on the necessity of the gospel and the change that needs to take place. So it's a beautiful song. And then we have Chris Tomlin, as others have before, contemporize it by adding a chorus that allows us to, to sing refrain um, that's expressive to God. It's not simply, um, if you'll notice the song, it's, it's, it's a declarative song. It's, it's declaring truth about myself and what God has done. But then the refrain is declaring truth to others and to God about what he's doing, done. So a beautiful expression of these traditions all brought together. So let's close with that.